So a busy day today. Got a few things due. The second set of solar observations, homework number four, both due today. Which again means you can turn them in now in class, between classes, or through the Dropbox on D2L anytime by 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. You can turn those in into the appropriate Dropboxes. And then I'll take a look for sure. The solar observations will be back on Monday for you. So I will have those back so you can have your sheets back on those. And then we have a quiz today. So busy, busy, busy day coming up. Um, the other things coming up next week, ignore that. That's my other class that meets right before you. The second article review is due next, fr next Friday. And then the iTunes quiz will be available starting on Monday. So you'll actually be able to You'll actually be able to get that starting on Monday. We'll cover the pictures through today. So this is the last image that will be on this quiz. I'll have the quiz finished and made up and finalized sometime today. And then that will be available starting on Monday and available for the full week again. I'm going to do it available for the full week for that quiz. So you can take it any time during then. You'll have the same similar number of tries to do it as we did on the, on the first one. And the pictures again go from the end of the previous quiz up through, up through today. So, any questions on what's coming up? No, no, no. All right. Picture of the day for today. Bunch of nebulae. And interesting enough, the way the picture is taken is kind of interesting. This is not, a lot of the times when you see a big picture of the sky, this is taking a big chunk of the sky, looking at a big chunk at once. Um, this is six, or sorry, three degrees across. So three degrees worth of the sky. Meaning you could fit six full moons across here. So you know, one, two, three, four, five, six full moons across it, taking a big chunk of the sky. Most of the time when you do that, you're looking at a number of images that are stitched together. So you take an image here and an image, and you stitch them all together to make your final image. This isn't. This is taken with one wide field camera looking at a big area of the sky at once, which is very nice for being able to survey the sky. It gives us some pretty pictures of the nebulae here. But it's much easier to survey and look at the whole sky if you can take a bunch of big images, you know, take a big chunk of the sky at once and then look at it, than it is to get all, you know, all these little tiny pictures, which is what most of the telescopes view. So this is actually taken with a special kind of a, sort of a wide field telescope looking at a very big area, which means it needs a very big camera to be able to take that picture. You know, cameras you're used to digital cameras and Nowadays, they're what? Let's see, they used to be a couple megapixels. Now you're getting 10 and 12 and 14 megapixel, I think, nowadays. Um, actually, I did look up on Amazon. I was just curious as to how big you can get. And you can actually, I saw a 36 megapixel camera you could buy. Cost about $100 per megapixel. So you probably, <laughs> so it's about $3,500 for it. But you can get a 36 megapixel camera if you want. The one used to take this was actually 1.4 gigapixels. So and imagine the cost, as I'm sure the cost goes up exponentially from there. I wonder, you know, wonder what the cost would be for a 1.6 gigapixel camera. So about, if you do that, 1.4 gigapixel. So if you, have a, if you have a 14 megapixel camera, this would be 100 times the size in terms of being able to get the resolution. You need that if you're going to take a picture of a big area of the sky, and then you want to be able to digitally look at certain areas. You want the resolution there. You want to have all that detail to be able to look in more, at bigger areas instead of just you know, a little um, area that you're not able to zoom in very well. You'd have to take another image closer up. So it's actually quite a big camera there. 
The other thing on it is that it's done, it is done in false color, so the color coding is not what you'd normally expect. Most of these are nebulae. These are mostly emission nebulae, meaning they should glow nice and red in hydrogen. They don't look very red, do they? They're blue and green. They've been color coded. The hydrogen is actually color coded in a blue or green in this image. The red is actually more of the dustiness of the stars in the Milky Way that we're seeing here. So it's color coded a little bit differently. But you see a number of those different nebulae, areas where stars are forming. So you have one up here. You can see some dark bands through it. One down here, you still see some darker splotches in it, which are the denser areas where the light is being blocked out. Again, those dark areas in this case are not an absence of material, but a presence of more material that is blocking it out. So deep down within these cores, there, which we'll study, be studying in next chapter, is you know, a star probably in the process of forming, or a group of stars. And you see those in each of these nebulae. Here's some dark areas right here. Again, not the absence of material, but the presence of something interesting going on there that we can't see, that's hidden from us in the optical view. So what we'll be studying in the next chapter is the interstellar medium and star formation. And that's what we'll be looking at is what's going on deep down in these, in these nebulae, especially in the dense cores there. So little preview of what's coming up next week. Any questions? No? Okay. Well, let's go on to our HR diagrams we were working on. <coughs> All right, so we had gone through, and I'd finished up on this slide last time, the color index, we were looking at that. Drove everybody crazy with it, I'm sure. But I wanted you to see it because you're going to be seeing it in lab today, so I wanted to make sure you'd seen the numbers and you knew, what, knew, knew kind of what it meant. And just to review real quick, this, the color index, we take the star, we measure it in two different filters. One is a blue filter, one is a visual or yellowish green filter means you're only looking at a very specific portion of the spectrum. And you look at how bright the star is in each of them. So you measure a magnitude, a brightness in this filter. You measure a brightness in this filter. And you compare the two. You subtract them in this case. You take this magnitude, the B, the blue, and subtract the visual magnitude. And that gives you the color index. That color index tells you the temperature of the star by just making a very easy measurement. Not as detailed as making a spectral classification of it, but a very good, accurate measurement by just making two observations. You just got to look at, you got to take the image with one, one set of stars, or one set of filter, one filter, and then with another filter. There, let's put it all the way up there. There we go. So that's the color index. That's what we call the color index. The sun would be a positive 0.656. So it's a positive number. Meaning that for a star like the sun, the blue is a, there's not as much blue light being emitted, and you're going to get more in the visual part. The sun is going to peak in the visual part of the spectrum. So the blue is not going to get as much light. It's going to be smaller, a brighter, a larger numerically magnitude. It's going to be a bigger number. That's where everything throws you, right? B being a larger number means it's fainter in the blue. So if you take a bigger number minus a smaller number, you get a positive number. And the bigger positive you get, the redder the star looks. So a very big number would mean B is a very, very large number, meaning that the star isn't giving you a lot of blue light. If it's not giving you a lot of blue light, it's a very cool star. If you get a negative number, a negative index, 
means you're getting a small number and subtracting a bigger number. Take a small number and subtract a big number, you're going to get something negative. That's telling you it's a very blue star. When the V is very small, that means there's a lot of blue light coming from it. So again, I wanted you to see these because one of the things you're doing in lab for the lab for today is to go through and actually plot out an HR diagram. So I'm going to give you a set of stars and what you're going to be plotting is the color index. So I didn't want you just, what, what is this color index all of a sudden? I wanted to make sure you had at least some idea. You don't have to do any calculations for it, I just give you the numbers. But I wanted you to at least have some idea of what it meant. Now, I put up our HR diagram from last time. I put up the axis on the x-axis here that I started making. I'm going to finish this, I'll finish this up today. But we measured on one axis temperature in some measure. We could measure temperature directly perhaps if you're measuring, getting an actual measure. Sun being about 5800 degrees. You could measure temperature by using the spectral type. Get the spectrum of the star and classify it and say exactly what kind of spectrum it is. You know, where does it fall on this line? Where do we put it? That's one way to plot it. Or you could use the color index. That's something that's very easy to measure. That's often what observing astronomers use. If you're going to make an HR diagram, that's a number you can easily observe. Doesn't require any classification. Doesn't require any detailed calculations to get a temperature. You measure the brightness of the star twice. And you've got the number. You've got a measure of the temperature and you can put it in here. The temperature increases in this direction. So the hotter stars are to the left. Yes, we've got to do it backwards. Don't put the hotter stars to the right. You always put the hotter stars to the left. So numerically, the big numbers for temperature are going to be over here. The small numbers are going to be over here. For the color index, it's the other way around. The big numbers are going to be here, and the small numbers are going to be here. Very blue stars, very hot stars are going to have negative. Very cool stars are going to have a positive one. Now, the other side, you're going to do a graph, you've got to apply plotting two things. So on the other side, you're going to plot the brightness. So how bright are the stars? Well, there's a couple different ways you can do that. You can do luminosity. Not something we measure directly, but you can certainly measure luminosity. Very faint stars at the bottom, very bright stars at the top is where the way we want to put them. So luminosity, numbers, very low luminosity, less than the sun would be down here. Put the sun in the middle somewhere, very bright stars would be up above it. Now luminosity isn't something you directly measure. You typically measure the magnitudes. And the measure that is of, of, an, of a luminosity measure is what we call the absolute magnitude. The absolute magnitude is how bright the star really is in the sky. So it's an actual measure of the luminosity of the star. But it's in terms of a magnitude instead of just a number, a luminosity number. It's in terms of a magnitude. Meaning that when you plot magnitudes, they don't go that way. They go the opposite direction. Small numbers are going to be at the top. Big numbers are going to be at the bottom. You're still plotting you know, bright stars up here. Whichever way you do it, and faint stars down here, and should have redone, you'd add hot stars and cool stars. So you're still doing that, but if you're plotting luminosity, it's going that way. If you're plotting absolute magnitudes, it goes the other way. The other thing that you can plot in some special cases, not all the time, but in some cases, what you're going to be doing for the lab is sometimes you can plot the apparent magnitudes. 
you can plot the apparent magnitude when all the distances are the same. So if all the distances to the stars are exactly the same, or if you know the distances, and you can take them into account, then you can get the absolute magnitude, but that's a harder number to get because you have to know all the distances. The apparent magnitudes, if all the distances are the same to the stars, well then it's easy. Then you can just use apparent magnitudes because distance isn't a factor. Now you just got to find all the stars that are the same distance away from us, right? Well that's not as hard as it sounds. We have, we've looked at some star clusters, stars that group together. Those stars are essentially as far all the same distance away from us. Yeah, there's some that are closer, some on the near side of the cluster, some on the far side of the cluster. So there are some that are a little bit closer and further away from us. Does that really matter? No. You know, if you're traveling from here to Los Angeles, some parts of Los Angeles are a little bit closer, some are a little bit further away. Do you take that into account in your measurement? Not really, not till you get there, right? When you get there, it makes a difference. If we go to this cluster, yeah, it would make a big difference because stars would be light years away. But the near side of Los Angeles and the far side are really essentially the same distance from us here. So it really doesn't matter. If we're measuring different parts of Los Angeles, we're going to say Los Angeles is some distance away. Not that, well, this, this building is so far away and this one is a kilometer further away and this one is a kilometer closer. Big deal when you're traveling thousands of kilometers across country. Right? Doesn't make a difference until you actually get there. Well, we're not traveling to the cluster, we're just measuring it. So when we look at clusters, we can measure apparent magnitudes and make an HR diagram. Normally you can't. If I just pick a random set of stars, this is useless. Because they're all at varying distances. So some might be brighter, might be closer, making them look brighter than they should be. Some might be further away, making them look, look much fainter than they will be. You'll just get a random scattering all over the, all over the graph. When you're just looking at a cluster, they're all at the same distance, essentially, and you'll get a much better graph as we looked at in the previous, in the previous chapter. So here's what we get. Here's a couple examples when we plot things. What do we find? Well, we find that most of the stars fall on what we call the main sequence, which goes from the upper left down to the lower right. So it goes from the upper left up there, very bright and hot stars, down to the lower right, very faint and cool stars. Faint, not fate. So that we see most of the stars fall on what we call the on the main sequence. Not all of them. Some of them fall. There are some stars that fall up here, which would be red giants. So you see some of those that fall off to the side. There's a red giant, red giant region. There's also a supergiant region. Why red giants? Because look where they fall on the HR diagram. They, fall all, they all fall to this side. And these are going to be, if we're looking at temperatures, those are hot stars blue. These are cool stars which tend to be red. So they tend to be in the reddish part of the HR diagram. So they're going to look red. The giants and many of the supergiants are going to look very red. You know, reddish and orange as they're in this part of the spectrum. If you get over here, you're going to see a lot of blue stars. You also see down here white dwarf stars. Stars that are very hot, 
but very faint. So very hot and very faint means they also have to be very tiny. So these are very small stars. So giant stars up here, very small stars down in this, down in this corner. But you don't see a lot of in-betweens. There aren't a lot of stars in between here. There's some in here in a subgiant branch, but not a lot. You see many more stars. The vast majority are on this main sequence. The ones that aren't on the main sequence are pretty much in the giants, supergiants, or white dwarf areas. There's a lot of very empty areas in the H diagram where stars don't exist. So it's telling us something about how the stars, how the stars form. How the stars form, how they go through their lives. That there's certain areas where they tend to be a lot more than others. And that's what we're seeing is the main sequence here, a lot of stars there, a lot of stars up in the giants, scattered things around when you're up on this side. Down here, pretty much white dwarfs and a lot of empty, a lot of empty areas. Not a lot of stars in those regions. Now you'll see that they're plotted on both scales. Again, some of them are done in luminosities. Some of them are done in um, absolute magnitudes. This one has temperature and spectral class. This one has color index. You can plot a number of different things, but you're all measuring the same thing. They're all measuring a measure of the temperature, some way of measuring the temperature, some way of measuring the magnitude. Thank you. Some way of measuring the magnitude of the brightness of the star. It also gives us some information. We learn about the masses of the stars. You have um, masses and the sizes. The sizes, which one am I not? Sizes of the stars go from very small, so your smallest stars would be down in this corner. Very hot and very faint would be your tiniest stars. Your largest stars would be up in this corner. Very bright, but extremely cool. Those are going to be the very largest stars that exist. So as you go further up towards this, you sort of see these lines that are drawn on here show where all the stars the size of the sun would lie on this diagram. So if you had a star the size of the sun, it would fall somewhere along here. Meaning that lots of main sequence stars are the size of the sun. Until you get to the very biggest ones, which are much bigger, the other ones, the fainter ones that are much smaller, most of them in the middle are about the size of the sun, relatively close. You get up to these bigger ones, you'll start getting to things 10, and you see how it goes 10 and 100, then it'll be 1,000 and even bigger, much, much bigger than the sun as you get up to this upper corner. Goes down the same way and smaller. These are things that are a tenth the size of the sun, a hundredth. Very tiny compared to the sun. You get down to the white dwarfs are comparable in size to the earth. You also learn something about the masses which are not plotted on there, but if you look along the main sequence you have the lowest mass down here. That's got the least amount of material. The high mass stars are up here. So you learn something. The diagram tells you a lot. By looking at where a star is on it, you can tell how bright it is, how big it is, how massive it is, just by where a star happens to be formed, uh, happens to be on the HR diagram. All right. Now, I've already gone through this. I sort of explained this a little bit. But for a star cluster, most of the time we've got a plant, pl pl plot Luminosity or absolute magnitude. We need some measure of how bright that star really is. For a cluster, because everything's at the same distance, I already answered my question there earlier, we can use the apparent magnitude. 
We can use just the brightness that the star appears. That's nice because it's easy to measure. I can just take a nice picture and I can measure the brightness of those stars. I don't need to do any calculations. I don't need to find distances to them. I don't need to do spectral classifications and do spectroscopic parallax or look for parallax. It's very easy to get. I can just take a picture of the cluster, measure the brightness of each star, boom. I can do that. We can also use it if you can get it, you can also use this idea of spectroscopic parallax is that this can work out to give you the distances. So if you have the apparent magnitudes, you make your HR diagram, helps you get the absolute magnitudes, you can actually calculate how far away the cluster is. Gives you the nice equation here. Well, let's try that again. Little m. Nice equation there to use that actually can be used to determine distances. Yuck, right? Logarithms? Astronomers are one of the few that still use logarithms in a number of things. So, But it works out that's the, because that's the way the magnitude scale is de- was developed a long time ago was a logarithmic scale. We still use that. But you could determine, you can measure this. If you can determine this once you've, cla- once you've made your HR diagram, you can determine how it scales. You can determine the absolute magnitude. Once you plot out the cluster, then you can determine the distance because the only thing you don't know here, we know what 5 is, right? We just don't know what d is. You can go through a calculation to actually determine the distance. and You can find out how far it is. That's the idea of spectroscopic parallax. You know what m is. You know this. That's easy to measure. This you can determine from your HR diagram. Once you have that, you can determine distances. Anytime you can, as long as you can get a classification on the star, as long as you can determine that to get its absolute magnitude, you can determine the distances. And again, that's what we went through last time. We talked about that as spectroscopic parallax. So here's an example of what you might see in some star clusters, and two similar to ones to what you'll be looking at in a little bit. Not quite so many stars. I'm not being that mean and making you plot thousands and thousands of stars. But what you're going to go through is plot out two different clusters. So one cluster like this, one cluster like this. And you'll see that the diagrams we get for both of them are quite different. There's some things that they have in common. There's the main sequence here. Here's the main sequence here. A lot more stars here. Everything's a lot better defined. But you have a main sequence. You have a main sequence here. And you have some red giants on this one. Got a lot more red giants in this one. And you have some other features here. You actually see this, what we call the horizontal branch. And you see the white dwarfs. Now we're going to go through that in a lot more detail in the coming chapters. But you see different patterns depending on the clusters. What it's telling you something about is the age of the cluster. This one on the left is a much older cluster of stars. So all these stars that used to be up here, this main sequence used to go all the way up here, those stars are long gone. They don't live very long. They're gone. Oops. Kick that. They're, very, they're gone. Whereas in this very young cluster, we still see a lot of those very hot, star, very hot stars are still present on the main sequence. A few of them are doing what we call turning off. They're leaving the main sequence and heading over towards the red giant phase. So the very most massive stars have already left the main sequence in this one. Now again, we're going to come back to that in much more detail in the coming chapters. But the HR diagram of a cluster does not always look identical. You don't always see all of these parts because all the stars, although they form at about the same time, they don't live the same amount of time. Some of them, like the sun, will live about 10 billion years. 
what I didn't put on there was the sun, right? Sun's right about there in the middle someplace. The sun will live about 10 billion years. These stars might live 100 billion years or a trillion years when you get way down to the end. Can't even imagine that time, right? Uh, 10 billion, can you imagine 10 billion years? No. These ones might live only live a few million. So as some of the stars are forming, it's quite possible that a lot of these stars are gone before these stars even begin to finish forming. These stars take longer to form. That's why you don't see a whole lot of those faint stars down here. They haven't had time to form yet. And boom, you see the rest of them are already done and some of them have already you know, evolved into later <coughs> stages of life. Alrighty. So what do we learn from the HR diagram? If you look at it, now we can never watch a star move on the HR diagram. You're not going to really see it. But what it means by saying a star moves is that it changes its position. So the sun is here now. If you could come back and look at the sun in 5 billion years after it's used up its hydrogen, it will have changed. It will have gotten cooler and it will have gotten brighter. So it will have moved. Instead of seeing it here, we'll see it over here in the red giant branch. We're not going to physically see any star do that moving during a single lifetime. They take way too long to do that. It's not an instantaneous thing. It takes it a good amount of time to slowly work its way up there. And it's doing that now. It's slowly going up there, changing and working its way towards the red giant portion of the, of the HR diagram. But stars will start out in one spot. They'll start out up here. Actually, they start off up towards the red giant range as well. That first picture we looked at, the picture of the day, right? I told you about all those dense cores where stars are forming. Well, if you're really classified, if you could actually see deep down in there, those would be bigger stars and cooler stars than typical. They'd be up towards the red giant range of the spectrum. You just can't see them because they're buried. So a star starts out way out here someplace, works its way down to the main sequence as it collapses, as it forms, stays on the main sequence for a vast majority of the time, and then eventually leaves it goes back off to the upper right, somewhere into the giant, into the supergiant, depends exactly on the specifics of the star that we'll look at in more detail when we go through the lives of the stars. And then it ends up, once it's done, it ends up down as a white dwarf. The sun will eventually come back in six, seven billion years. The sun will be down here someplace. It'll be a white dwarf star. Outer layers will be pushed off into space. The core that's left over will be extremely hot and extremely small, about the size of the Earth. And the sun will be then even fainter than it, than it, it, would, be, it would be now. So it moves around the main sequence. Doesn't mean it's really doing any moving in space. It's only moving in terms of where, it's, where it ends up on here. How is its temperature changing as it goes through its life? How is its luminosity changing? And that's what's going to occur as you move through the HR diagram. So here's an example for a star like the sun. And again, you'll see this coming up again in two chapters. But what happens for something like the sun is it's on the main sequence. I skipped the earlier phases. It would have started out here with stages one through six as it formed. Stage seven is the main sequence. Then it goes up through giants and into supergiants and back down. So it kind of jumps around there at different stages in its life. It's going to be slowly moving around here and then eventually ending up as a white dwarf eventually ending up as a white dwarf star now let me see if i have see if this will work on this one is it going to go good look at a couple examples of this this is a little 
uh, applet that'll run that will actually show how kind of how the star moves depending on its mass. You have a set a star here. You can set its mass. You can also set how fast you want it to how fast you want it to run. And I'm going to start it for a relatively faint star. I'm going to put that on automatic just because otherwise these small stars will take forever. But this is a star that is a little bit smaller than the sun. So what is it going to do? It's slowly, for a while there, it's getting, it's getting brighter. It's getting brighter, got a little bit warmer. Now it's getting cooler again. Look at the time frame. You're talking billions of years, 22 billion years. You can see it's getting larger, redder. The star is growing in size. And after about 22 billion years, it's gone from the main sequence, which would have been way down here, moved off, and moved up into a red giant phase. So a star a little bit less massive than the sun would take a relatively long time to do that. A star like the sun, uh, let's see, do we want the regions? Yeah, we can put the regions on, there we go. So there's the main sequence. A star more like the sun, starting at about 5 billion years, was on the main sequence. Move out, will get, definitely get a lot cooler, goes back there, kind of jips, jumps, jumps around, but ends up in almost Almost the same place. Look at the time difference. 22 billion years, 6 billion years. Sun will do the same thing. We'll end up in about the same spot. Has a little extra little jump in its thing, jump in its path because of its mass. But ends up in almost exactly the same spot as a red giant star at this point. Now it doesn't go through the entire life where it would have become a planetary nebula and then a white dwarf. It just goes through the beginning. If we look at a more massive star, uh, let's go to, let's do five. Five times the mass of the sun. So a little further up the main sequence. Bluer star. Again, watch your time frame here. We're down to millions of years now. 72 million years. Watch how the, scar, the star's color will change much more drastically here. It goes from a very blue to a very red star and then almost shoots up, getting much, much bigger. Again, a star much more mass, five times the mass of the sun, 73 million years. If the sun had been five times more massive, it would be gone already. Long gone, right? sun's been around for five billion years. You know, we, wouldn't have been able, we wouldn't even be here with a star five times the mass of the sun. Let's do one more. Well, let's go all the way to 100. Some of the biggest stars, about 100 times the mass of the sun. Here it runs, starts way off at the upper part of the main sequence, a million times the luminosity of the sun. Very, very blue star. You see it zigzagging back and forth a little bit as it goes through different energy sources. But the whole trend is towards that upper right, towards the red giants, towards the red supergiants phase. Star gets much, much bigger and much, much cooler. How about the time frame there? Three million years. So they all took the same amount of time to run because I put it on automatic. Because if you otherwise, if you try to run a 0.7 solar mass star without, uh, without it being on automatic, it takes a long time because it just sits here. It just sits there. So you have to run through those first few billion years very, very quickly and then come back. But when you end up with this one, you can get an idea. Only three million years it took to go through its life. Those stars do not live very long. That's why when we look at the HR diagrams of clusters, 
we don't often see a lot of these stars. You don't see a lot of them up there because they're not up there for very long. You've got to catch them right after they formed because a couple million years later, they're gone. Alrighty, let me go back to this. So what we were looking at there is trying to give you the idea looking at that little applet says that the massive stars evolve faster, move faster. The low mass stars take much longer times. 22 billion years, 3 million years. Little bit of a difference, little bit of a difference there. And the white dwarf star is an end of a star like the sun. So a star like the sun will end up down here. <coughs> Some of the more massive stars won't end up as white dwarfs. There are other possibilities for those highest mass stars. Anything down here, up through the sun, and even a little bit beyond that will end up as a white dwarf. Up above here, the stars can become unstable. And these are the ones that can actually tear themselves apart in what we call a supernova explosion. So these are the ones that are interesting when something interesting happens to them. Not a lot happens to Oh, thank you. Now the last one, again, I showed you this chart already, is the white dwarfs. The white dwarfs are the dead core of a star much like the sun. Most of the mass is still there. It hasn't lost a lot of mass because that mass is concentrated at the center. But it's expelled its outer layers. It's lost a lot of size. So this star is now the size of the Earth. These are about the size of the Earth. So very tiny. Imagine the mass of the sun, but it's compressed to the size of the Earth extremely dense objects that are left over when a star, again like the sun or any of these smaller ones, reach the end of their lives up through so a little more than the sun down there. Most of them will end up down here. So we'll end up eventually with a lot of white dwarf stars in the universe. They're very hot, very small, and very faint. Again, they're the size of the Earth, but their temperatures are comparable to those of some of the hottest stars. But because they're so tiny, they're still going to be very faint. They're not going to look very bright in the, in the sky. The white dwarf stars don't stay in one spot. They slowly move down on the main sequence. Once you get to a white dwarf star, you have no energy source left. So it's not producing any energy in its core. The sun's producing energy through nuclear reactions. Well, once it's done with its life, there's nothing there. It's just the dead core of a star. It's pretty hot, but it's slowly cooling off. Its temperature is going to constantly go down and down and down. And it's going to, as the temperature decreases, it moves it towards the right. But as its temperature decreases, it's also going to get fainter. So it's going to move diagonally down and down and down. It goes from a white dwarf, eventually cooling off to a black dwarf. Right? Real bright, hot white dwarf down to a black dwarf that has that's very cool. There are no black dwarfs yet. The white dwarf takes so long to cool off that it hasn't had time in the history of the universe to cool off. So even the very first white dwarfs that formed have cooled off some, but they haven't cooled off enough to be dark black dwarfs yet. But that's eventually, you know, the state of the universe would be a whole bunch of dead black dwarfs. There wouldn't be much else. You know. Again, talking many billions of years in the future, not before the exams, not nothing else. But many billions of years in the future, that would be what you'd have. You'd have a whole bunch of these dead cores of stars and not much else in the universe. And let's see. Here's some of the things that are left over. These are the examples of what can happen. The one on the left is what we call a planetary nebula. That's the ring nebula. Nicely visible right now if you've got a 
decent sized telescope in the evening. It's nicely visible. It's almost straight overhead in the evening sky. Um, that's the ring nebula. But there's the white dwarf right there. We can see it. And this is the outer layer. So you can imagine this is just like a star. There's the outer layers of the star. There's the core of the star. It got so big that gravity could not hold the outer layers anymore. So they got expelled out into space. The gravity just wasn't strong enough. They were moving fast enough that they reached the escape velocity from the star. And they're just slowly expanding out into space. The other thing that I mentioned that can happen is a supernova. The star can tear itself apart. A much more massive star, way up here on the main sequence, can tear itself apart. That's a supernova explosion. Yes, there's a remnant uh, deep down in about here, in the, in the center there. And that star, that's what's left over after this star tore itself apart. But you can see the difference. Right? That looks nice and calm. Just looks like the star just kept growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Right? This one looks like something big, something violent happened. That star tore itself apart. That was actually an explosion tearing the star apart and expelling all of that out into space. And it just looks like something much more violent happened in that, in that ending than it is, than in the other. Now that's the one we have to look forward here on Earth, right? Five, five, six billion years from now. That's eventually will be the sun. The core will have expanded. It will have engulfed all of the inner planets. So we'll be gone anyway. And then the outer layers will just be expelled out into space. So that amount of time, a distant astronomer from someplace else looking back would be able to see, you know, there's where Earth was, there's where the Earth was, there's where the Sun was, there's where sun, our Sun was, and there's the outer layers of it now. This would be the much more massive star where it actually is exploded and thrown off into space. And again, we'll look at most of this in much more detail later on. So finishing up here, about right, good. HR diagram gives you a lot of information. And that's why I've got everything on here. It's telling you, you're, you're learning, you know the temperature, you know the brightness. That's what you're plotting. That's what we're going to be doing in the lab. But you also learn things by once you plot a star on there, when you know its temperature and its, luminos and its luminosity, and you plot it, you can learn about how massive the star is. Where does it fall on the main sequence? So the mass works, again, for the mass. I should specify, the mass means for the main sequence. It doesn't mean that these are all low mass stars and those are all high mass stars. That's not the case. It's along the main sequence. You have the lowest mass more to one solar mass and up to the much more massive stars. But you can learn about the mass. You can learn about the size. Where are the biggest stars? Way up to the upper right-hand corner. Giant stars are going to be there. These stars are the very biggest. The furthest up diagonally you can go up this way, you're going to get larger and larger stars. These stars are bigger than the sun, but they're much, much smaller than the stars over here. Smallest stars are going to be way down in this corner. Yes, these are teeny tiny stars, but these are the smallest down in this corner. Here you're talking about things that are the size of Jupiter. Yeah, smallest stars might be not a little bit bigger than Jupiter. These things are the size of the Earth, much, much smaller, the white dwarf. So if down in this corner, you'd get the extremely smallest stars. We learn about, again, the temperature, the brightness, the mass, the radius. We learn a lot of details about the star by plotting it on here. And by looking at clusters, we can learn how stars change over time. So when we get to chapter 12 on stellar evolution, which tells how the stars go through its lives, then we can learn you know, how do the stars move? How does their brightness change? How does their temperature change as they go through different stages of their lives? Most of the time, is on the main sequence. 
That's why we see so many stars there on the main sequence is because that's where they spend most of their life. If a star spends 90% of its life on the main sequence and you take a picture of it at a random time during its life, you know, if you think of it as a person with a 100-year lifespan, if it spends 90 years in one spot and you just take a random picture of that person, well, 90 years worth, they're going to be in that one spot. That's where you're going to find them. On the occasional, the, the rest of the 9% is going to be in the red dwarf, red giant stage probably. You see a lot of stars there. Anytime others, you're just catching somebody at a very, something at a star at a very odd position in its life. Something that doesn't last a very long period of time. You just happen to catch those few stars there. Or in the case of the white dwarfs, yes, there's a lot more, but they're real hard to see. You're getting down to very, very faint stars and you run into the problem of being able to see them. Yes, eventually there will be a lot of white dwarf stars and then turning into black dwarf stars. So again, some of this is sort of a preview. Mostly what I wanted you to get out of it was the HR diagram so that you knew what we were looking at because you'll be seeing this again. You'll be seeing this in the next two, next two three chapters very consistently as we go through the lives of the stars. So, it's about right. Any questions? You ready for the quiz then? You got your diagram ready? That's pretty much your quiz, so. No, I'm not going to leave it up, but if you've, got that, if you've got that diagram down, that's pretty much what I'm going to ask you to reproduce for me. So hopefully it's not a tough quiz that way, but I really want to make sure you have the HR diagram part down before I do, before I do that. So give you a last chance to look at it I will, I have to, before I erase it. Any questions on it? No, no, no? Okay. Let me 